Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Despite continued protests, I remain Scott Morris, and I'm joined today for another Fuds on Film podcast by my good friends, Craig. Hello. Andrew. Hello. So we have made it to the end of January, and you know what that means? That means we're going to talk about a bunch of random films. So let's start doing that then. (laughs) (laughs) We'll start with uh, Wonder Woman 1984. Drew, what is that all about? Well... Before I begin, Scott, how many free coughs do I get before you have to start bleeping them? None. Oh, um, oh. So he's let, he's, I've noticed he's let some of mine slip through, Drew, in the past. So you might, you might get away with this. Still, chance your arm. I, I'm thinking if Scott's going for none, then we may have a problem here. Can I get an hour to rewrite my review? <laughs> no? no. Oh well, um, I'll do the best I can. 2017's Wonder Woman was four-fifths of a really good film, until the dull CGI-heavy climax, although that's rather de rigueur for the genre. But it was entertaining, successful, proved, because the harder thinking apparently required such evidence that the main character of a superhero action film could be female, and gave its director, Patty Jenkins, a lot of sway. Not all of these things were good, it turns out, but we'll get to that. What it also did less positively, was paint itself into a corner, both in terms of character, Wonder Woman, Justice League, and I think also Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice, having repeatedly established Wonder Woman having withdrawn from view for a century, and by having the final fight be against a god. Not a metahuman, not an alien who gets high on our funky yellow sun, or a being from another dimension or anything. No, a straight-up god. And as well as bothering me that actual deities were canon in this universe, it raised the not insignificant question of, how do you top that in a sequel? Well, apparently what you do is, rather than big, rather than go big, go stupid. <laughs> go very, very stupid. And long. So, so long. <laughs> the film begins back in our heroine's childhood, as a young Diana competes in a race against adult Amazons on the island of Themyscira, proving her athletic ability, as well as the ability of her and the other Amazon warriors to be slightly less dreadful digital doubles than in the 2017 film. So, you know, progress. The lengthy sequence exists just to A, set up that there was a super badass Amazon once who had some nifty armour, and B, to allow Diana's mother to deliver some bullshit dime store philosophy about how Diana didn't win because she wasn't ready to win and something, 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 something truth. When, in fact, she just missed one checkpoint she'd have been disqualified on a technicality. The film begins in 1984. Did I just say the film begins again? Why, yes I did, because this film has two openings. So that's great. As I was saying, the film begins in 1984. And why is this film set in 1984? No idea, but I assume because Stranger Things. Though the period it's set in is inconsequential in every single thing that happens in it. So that's also great. Right, sorry, 1984. In a shopping mall, in Washington DC, where Wonder Woman swoops in to rescue a child endangered by the fallout of a bungled robbery. Unlike the opening, the opening's fairly entertaining. But you best make the most of it because it's comfortably more than an hour in this action film until the next action scene. This also is great! (laughs) We next move to the Smithsonian Museum, where Diana works, and where we meet Kristen Wiggs Barbara, a rather lonely gemologist. She's been tasked by the FBI to identify one of the pieces recovered from the botched robbery, a mysterious and ancient crystal that is absolutely not Aladdin's lamp sans genie, you hear? Barbara is soon visited by Pedro Pascal's Max Lord, or, as I registered him, Matthew McConaughey in Wolf of Wall Street cosplay, a con man and would-be oil tycoon who has been seeking the Dreamstone. Using incredible stealth and skullduggery, he reaches behind Barbara. <laughs> Lord makes off with the tombstone. <laughs> Sorry. It's very clever plotting, Craig. <laughs> just, it's the fact you had to deliver it in a whisper to really convey the magnitude of the uh, subterfuge going on yes. there. <laughs> Lord makes off with the tombstone and for some reason turns himself into it or it into him. 
So he's now a genie. Yeah? Yes. Um, I'll carry on. <laughs> Just go with it, Craig. Okay. I'm worried I've missed something here, but okay. No, no. As we're audiences the world over. Yes. <laughs> he then uses his new powers to acquire the oil he had hitherto been claiming to have understandable enough but then keeps going forcing people to make wishes and taking stuff from them total effing mystery uh, most of this part of my review is just question marks <laughs> uh, before Lord got his hands on the stone though two significant wishes had all be- already been made with it Barbara wishes to be like Diana Diana this woman she's only just met and knows nothing about but well she walks well in high heels and Diana the super strong, thousands of years old demigod wishes for the return to life of Steve Trevor, Chris Pine, the man she knew for a few weeks but has been pining for since his death 76 years previously. Cool. <laughs> These wishes work. I want you to please hold on to the word stupid that I mentioned earlier, as this will be your anchor point through all of this. <laughs> and suddenly, Steve Trevor mints is in our house, alive but inhabiting someone else's body. And then he stays for most of the rest of the film, with Princess Diana of Themyscira, wise, moral and compassionate heroine, champion of what is right, apparently 100% unfussed by the fact that her dead lover has taken possession of another human being's body and its ethical and moral implications. As with most things in this movie, this is great! (laughs) Trevor Mint's arrival is accompanied by one of only a handful of utterly woeful, attempts at humour in the film where he dresses up in a bunch of 80s outfits. Ho-ho! This is, no doubt, a callback to a similar scene in 2017's Wonder Woman where Diana arrives in London and struggles to find appropriate clothing in a shop. That's actually quite a charming scene, though, and it works with her naivety and fish-out-of-water situation. Here, it's miserable. Then Steve... The soldier, spy, and adventurer who fought in World War I is amazed by an escalator, a 19th century invention, and utterly gobsmacked <laughs> by a subway train, also a 19th century invention, and something that had been operating in one form or another in London, the city he was living in in the first film, for more than 50 years at the time of that film's um, events. But then, shortly afterwards, he hops into a modern fighter jet and can just fly it. Again, great! Well, these these new planes practically fly themselves, Drew. Uh, I, I'm going to stop here, because we're still only in the early stages of Wonder Woman 1984, and if I listed everything wrong with it, which is everything, uh, then we'd be here a very long time. Not that there's actually an awful lot of plot to follow, mostly just a bunch of messy, dumb and inexplicable stuff that happens up until a comically underwhelming and underlit, almost climactic fight that at least earned itself a minor reprieve by making me imagine Wonder Woman as Batfink, with her wings like a shield of steel. (laughs) And a finale which largely consists of perhaps the most insipid, hokey, turgid, nonsensical, meaningless and boring speech ever heard in film. Which, like everything else, goes on too long. And given how long I've been talking now about this film, I'm aware of the irony. How much of this film's failings are down to Warner Brothers DC's recent mishandling of their properties? There, for instance, clearly is now only one DC screen hero, and that's Superman, with everything else being simply a palette swap, bringing us the exciting tales of Lady Superman and Wet Superman. (laughs) (laughs) And how much of it is due to Patty Jenkins' misuse of her power, I'm not sure. But Jenkins herself writing the script for Wonder Woman 1984 is top of my list of suspects. Hmm. The whole thing is an ugly mess, an hour too long, uh, like actually an hour too long, with some dodgy effects. How this is even still possible is beyond me, but DC films in particular have been marked out since Man of Steel by digital doubles barely better than Blade 2 and <laughs> numerous terrible green screen close-ups, lead in dialogue and universally wooden acting, especially from Gal Gadot. Well, apart from the wasted Petro Pascal, who is completely over the top instead. Add to that IMAX sequences even more underwhelming than those we recently complained about in Tenet, and numerous other crimes, big and small, and we have a film that's worse than Suicide Squad. (laughs) In fact, in Wonder Woman 1984, I think we may have a new low point for big-budget superhero films. Egads. 
But I suppose without zero, all of the numbers are a bit meaningless. So there's its utility right there. <laughs> Great. Wow. See, here's the thing. I d- didn't hate Wonder Woman 1984 because I found it almost entirely impossible to care or pay any attention <laughs> to anything that was going on on it. And the, the most interesting thing to me about this film is not anything that it does, which it is... It is mostly stupid, and when it's not stupid, it's Pedro Pascal shooting the scenery, which, to be honest, I'm on board with. That's cool. <laughs> he can do that as much as he likes. That was the only fun bit of the film for me. Oh, God, Kirsten Wiggs totally miscast. That whole character just should not be there. There's all, there's all lots of... There's a great many flaws, most of which you've already pointed out, so I won't go past those again. <laughs> but what this was... I was really watching this and thinking, who is the market for this these days? I mean, look... If nothing else, it's just, we had this kind of similar conversation when the last um, Spider-Man film came out in a, in a kind of post-Avengers endgame world where we, we've seen superhero films with constant threat escalation over the point of it, which you kind of hinted at in your view as well. But Avengers Endgame and Infinity Wars, they killed half the galaxy and then brought them back. What what happens after that? Where do superhero movies go if they wanted to continue on that trajectory? And no one's got a great answer to that. Mm-hmm. I think Marvel might have something because when you look at what they've got lined up, um, they, they all appear to be either smaller scale or weird. Um, particularly, the, I mean, I've no interest in what One Division's doing really, but the fact that it's a, a show where you've taken two of the main, well, two characters from the Avengers and put them into parodies of sitcoms for some reason. Uh, I mean, that's definitely weird. So the doing something with that that is nothing related to the kind of ridiculous threats they've got so they're trying to like bring that back down so they can build it back up again all very sensible maybe that's one way they can do it the other thing that and i think that's something that dc needs to start learning as well um but i mean really what is the purpose of superhero movies these days because no one's going to see it for the spectacle because you can't go out and see it in this post-covid world Possibly, we may never get back to that. The whole superhero um, genre, in my opinion, at least anyway, and I'm sure there's some thesis about this, would be a reaction to how the way that global geopolitics, the way that corporations are controlling everything, the fact that the individual has so little power that it's nice to see an escapist fantasy where one person can make a difference. And we've seen with all uh, COVID that one person can't make a difference in the face of something as insignificant as a virus. So how are we going to deal with that as a society? How is that going to come out in um, films of which the superhero genre is currently the dominant one? But I don't know how this is going to work going forward. And certainly none of that's even remotely addressed by Wonder Woman 1984, which is very much stuck in a pre-everything of that kind of world. It's a, a film that might have made sense if this had come out in about 2005. But in the modern era, this speaks to no one and is also garbage as well so it doesn't really work on any level so it's very difficult to recommend I mean even if we are all just bored looking for something to watch there's definitely better things to watch than this including an off television absolutely yeah just um, really puzzling what this is they're attending to do with this and again uh, Patty Jenkins had a lot of sway in the production in this and as rightly as should I'm always on board with um, certainly giving directors with a vision this kind of budget but sometimes they waste that and that's what's happened here because her vision apparently included having two openings she apparently fought to keep both of the openings it's so bad Uh, which was effectively asking as another introduction, another origin story for Wonder Woman, which we've already done. Do you guys uh, even watch movies to enjoy yourselves anymore? <laughs> and um, I would like to follow up that with the question, have you seen Gal Gadot's thighs recently? I will, listen, I will, I will undoubtedly watch this at some point. I haven't done it yet because by my understanding, there are 1,982 other movies that I have to watch uh, before <laughs> yeah, I get around to this yeah. one. I had no idea the release schedule would be in that packed in the meantime. But uh, yeah, that, uh, all of which is to say I haven't seen it. Sorry. Yes, there's lots of films that we enjoy to watch. Speaking of which, Wolfwalkers. Yes, including several we talk about in this episode, Craig. So yes, take your cynicism oh, away. I've, I've, I've drawn a good straw this week, I feel. Yes, Wolfwalkers then. 
Whether by flaw or by design, most people would probably agree that Apple have so far kept off the pace set by the other big streaming platforms in terms of the quantity and arguably quality of their original programming. One thing the Cupertino campus isn't short of, however, is cash, and if they can't or won't make that content, then the option is certainly there for them to buy it. Uh, (laughs) Some interesting stuff is gradually finding its way onto TV+. And of recent note, Wolf Walker certainly stands out as worthy of your time. The most recent effort from Irish animation studio Cartoon Saloon, who previously brought you The Breadwinner and Fuds on Film favourite Song of the Sea, which I have finally now caught up with Drew. Uh, Wolfwalkers plants its action in the studio's na- uh, native Kilkenny with a nebulously medieval fantasy setting, a time and place steeped in rich folklore and magical overtones. Robin Goodfellow, voiced by Honor. Nevesy, I'm, I'm pronouncing that. I don't know if that's correct. Uh, Honour, if you're listening, I know you're a big fan. Uh, <laughs> I apologise. As uh, a young English apprentice hunter, anyway, who has accompanied her father Bill, Sean Bean, to Ireland on his quest to rid Kilkenny of a seemingly antagonistic lupine presence amongst the woods. This is a problem for the Lord Protector of the Occupying English Forces, voiced by Simon McBurney, who has sworn to safeguard his townspeople as they clear the woods for agricultural purposes. But, arguably, it becomes an even bigger issue for Bill when Robin befriends a feral young Irish girl named Maeve. A wild child in more ways than one, Maeve, voiced by Eva Whitaker, is a wolf walker, human when awake, transforming into a wolf when asleep, and the daughter of the problematic wolf tribe's leader, Maul, voiced by Maria Doyle-Kennedy. As Robin's friendship with Maeve blossoms, it places her at odds with her father, as her determination to seek a peaceful resolution between the wolves and the village is in direct opposition to Bill's orders from the Lord Protector, namely that he is to eradicate the wolves promptly or suffer the consequences of failing his master. Things are complicated further by a turn of events detailed in the trailer, but which I'd rather not discuss here in the hope that you haven't seen that but would very much like to watch Wolfwalkers, which you should, because it's very good. As an example of classic children's storytelling, Wolf Walkers is an absolute delight, with another delightful screenplay from Will Collins. And while the narrative is so well crafted that it would no doubt work in just about any medium, it succeeds particularly well here in light of Cartoon Saloon's hand-drawn aesthetic, complete with leftover animator's pencil marks, which is rich, vibrant, full of character and distinct in style. I found myself particularly surprised by that latter observation, as I suppose in a world flooded by visual media, the quest for artists to establish ownership of a style that doesn't feel contrived must be increasingly fraught. Yet I found Wolf Walkers to be visually enchanting and unique in a way that was immediately engaging. An animated feature can, of course, also live or die by the quality of its voice performances. And again, there is good news here in that they range from entirely decent at one end of the spectrum to absolutely excellent at the other. The former, you may be unsurprised to learn, is embodied by Sean Bean, whose thespian career in general remains an enigma to me, but here delivers a performance that is tonally in keeping with the piece and remains commendably removed from the risk of screwing it up for everyone else. Well done, Sean Bean. You may have a lollipop. The real value, however, is to be found in the performances of the two young leads, upon whose diminutive shoulders the lion's share of the narrative rests, and it turns out we're in pretty safe hands. Honor Nevesy does a pretty admirable job with Robin Goodfellow, and if at times I felt she lacked a little range, I did remind myself that she was frequently bouncing off the performance given by Sean Bean. (laughs) It's Eva Whitaker who really shines though A young woman about whom we know nothing Other than her one prior credited performance In a TV short from 2019 With a fantastically engaging portrayal of Maeve That fits beautifully with her character's visual appearance And avoids the pitfalls of precociousness Or self-conscious delivery that younger actors often fall into We don't know where she's from We don't know where she's going But we do hope to hear from her again Directors Tom Moore, a cartoon saloon regular, and Ross Stewart do an admirable job of keeping the storytelling tight. With material this aesthetically rich, the temptation to indulge must no doubt be difficult to resist, the discipline essential, and so it speaks well to both parties that the end result is so cohesive and compelling throughout. As Stewart's first directorial credit, this is a pretty good start to a new paragraph of his already burgeoning creative resume, and for Moore, it marks another uptick on his path to becoming perhaps the new messiah of traditional animation. The real litmus test of such things remains, of course, the attentions of a younger audience. And if the feedback from my clones aged 7 and 4 and 11 twelfths are anything to go by, then Wolf Walkers gets a big thumbs up from its de facto target audience. But I'm willing to wager its appeal will be pretty universal. I think you're probably right there. I would, I have to admit, 
I was slightly disappointed by Wolf Walkers. I had been really looking forward to it. I liked some of all of uh, Cartoon Saloon's other stuff to varying degrees, but all like generally it was you know, very good. And I didn't enjoy it as much as I hoped to. But I want to watch it again probably fairly soon too, just to see if that was maybe a mood thing. Mm. Um, well, I've already established you've stopped watching films just to enjoy them, Drew. Yes, that's that's we've firmly established, Craig, mm. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a little bit of a slow build for me. I, the first maybe 10 or 15 minutes, it was really not doing much for me at all. Ooh. But then at the point when Maeve and Robin first meet and start kind of basically arsing about in the forest, and I was like, and I was finding it really entertaining, really fast. Oh, right, okay, yes, here we are, this feels better. Mm. And yeah, I'm not sure what else to say about it, other than that, I did enjoy it, not as much as I was hoping. The animation style like, is noticeably cartoon saloon, but each film does tend to have its own stamp. Um, mm. In a lot of ways, this definitely felt a lot like The Secret of Kills in the style, but there are um, extra things too. So in this case, very specifically, um, if it's been there before, I don't actually remember noticing it, but as you mentioned, the animator's pencil marks being left, which is a mm. a bold choice because it kind of, it could read like the, somehow they had forgotten or run out of time to remove them or something. It's, like, it's obviously deliberate, yeah. but it's... Or, or just like a really sort of horrible affectation. Like yeah, a desperate um, attempt to establish something unique. Yeah, so I'm not... It worked for me, though. I, I liked yeah. seeing it in there. I thought that was interesting. And then you've got the the way the town is shown, Kilkenny, with no perspective at all. And it's shown mm. a very kind of... You know, like a, a ninth or, I mean, 10th or 11th century, way, very medieval, the way it's drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the actual only real depth in the animation is in the forest... And the only time you see any sort of hint of perspective at all, I quite like that juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. That worked really well. But yeah, it, it's good. I like Cartoon Saloon a lot, and I like that there are still these traditional animation studios, at least in terms of like 2D, hand-drawn stuff, albeit that they're um, digitally um, put together, because well, why wouldn't you use that tool? Yeah, exactly. But I like that there's still people doing that sort of thing with a decent budget and decent ambition, that they've not just all been subsumed by... See, Jan, I don't think it ever will be, but I still think it, it becomes a harder and harder sell. Mm-hmm. The the only thing I wanted to mention, because I thought it was, a, it was strange watching it, like, Cromwell's never named as Cromwell in the whole film. And I wonder if that's because, like, the um, the target audience isn't going to know who Cromwell is, or what mm-hmm. my personal belief is that Cromwell may just actually be a really bad swear word in Ireland. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's um, entirely possible. That was what I came down to say. I was like, yeah, like probably consider it even worse than I consider the word Tory. Um, sorry if you've got to bleep me again, Scott, <laughs> in this episode. But, uh, it was like Cromwell's. It's just, I just this was struck by the fact that they very specifically don't call Cromwell Cromwell. They always the Lord Protector and a, and a few other names as well. That that's not yes. a, a really comment on the film. It's more just like that was of interest to me. But um, just before Scott gives us his thoughts. I assume he's watched this. Um, what did you think of Song of the Sea, Craig, if now you've just caught up with it? Oh, I really enjoyed it. Again, we watched it in pretty short order after this, so it was a little while ago now. But um, again, my litmus test is always the kids. Uh, mm. And my daughter it was my daughter was the impetus to watch Wolfwalkers because she'd seen the trailer and she was really, really excited to watch it. So I'm like, yeah, of course, cool. And then immediately after watching this, I'd said, oh, right, okay. Because um, the pair of them really enjoyed it. Uh, I said, oh, you know, there's there's another uh, film made by the same people that Daddy needs to watch anyway. Do you want to watch that? Um, and we sat down. And in some respects, I think I, I maybe enjoyed Song of the Sea even more. Um, but, yeah, no, I'd, I'd honestly, I'd, I'd this, this was the first cartoon saloon uh, production that I'd watched. I think, in fairness, actually, it's I, I think it's, strictly speaking, a co-production, again, which a lot of their s- stuff has been. Yeah, uh, the Breadwinner but, was a co-production with somebody... Yeah. Oh, I can't remember, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a co-production as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it falls. I, I think it falls firmly under the banner of Cartoon Saloon, however. But um, uh, I was, I, I just, I just found them really engaging and enchanting in the way that because I read, a, I, I read a lot with my kids. Um, I spend a lot of time reading with them, and in the sort of best sense of children's illustrated literature, some of the best books we've enjoyed there. And I'm trying to think, Song of the Sea really put me in mind of 
not Oliver Jeffers. Oh, the name escapes me now, but there's an author whose books we really enjoy, and um, it really put me in mind of that. And it's just, uh, it was just a lovely piece of classical storytelling, and there are elements of Song of the Sea that were quite, perhaps more abstract than in this, that mm-hmm. uh, potentially went over the the kids' heads a little bit more, but it didn't detract from didn't detract from from their enjoyment of it they kind of had to they kind of had to ask me to explain a couple of times what was happening uh, in song song of the sea because i think some of the uh, imagery was a little bit more uh what's the word i'm looking for i've already used abstract and now <laughs> my vocabulary's failing me um but there, there wasn't that issue with bullfuckers but i really really enjoyed them both i don't know i would have to watch them both again to tell you which i i felt was probably the better film but I, I really don't think anyone's going to waste time watching either of them. Good to hear. Very nice. Very nice indeed. Uh, because obviously I have to watch a lot of uh, kids stuff and I find myself zoning out quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of CG stuff out there. And I know no one sets out to make a bad or mediocre piece of entertainment. I'm sure everybody involved in the production of Captain Underpants was just as <laughs> or boss baby was just, was was just as involved and uh, and keen to please as uh you know the 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 people responsible for something like soul but the amount of sort of throwaway or it feels like throwaway sort of cg filler material that's out there it's just really lovely to see something to find something that felt new to me because obviously you guys had seen song of the sea but i hadn't so to to um to have something that was so uh, classical, but like in no way, shape or form lacking in sophistication uh, was really refreshing. And I just think I really appreciated some of the character design in this. I think the, in particular, the character design of Maeve, I think that's a really beautiful piece of illustration. And I just, if, it's one of those films where if you just turn, you, I could turn the sound off and probably enjoy it just purely on a, on a visual level. I don't know that, I don't know that necessarily the uh, the dialogue is necessary. Um, and I think that's, uh, that in particular is a, a marker of a, a really good piece of entertainment because just like a storybook, the illustrations probably convey the story just as well as the text. Um, I think this film probably does just as good a job uh, visually. Um as it as it does in the dialogue uh so yeah just i very very much enjoyed them maybe like a cross between a hedgehog and a troll doll <laughs> it's very unusual <laughs> that's a pretty good summation actually yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, just yes really. i have i have nothing negative to say with walkers and most of the positives you've already covered so won't go on too long um just yes lovely film highly enjoyable Really lovely narrative. Um, it's really livens up, as you say, Greg, when the when the younglings are on screen together. Really, uh, mm. sort of really kind of spark off each other and creates a, a really kind of memorable little uh, relationship between the two. And that's that works really well, and that really carries the rest of the film. And yes, it's it's all great. Uh, the visual style I loved um, all the way throughout, um, particularly when it's uh, like you say, Drew. I think it's like when it's back into the town and it looks more like a kind of almost Anglo-Saxon tapestry. Yeah. Exactly mm. the sort of thing I was thinking about. Yeah, it looks absolutely fantastic, and in the kind of more nature and, and the free form wood stuff, all all just lovely stuff. Um, yeah, just just a really really enjoyable film. Loved it. Yay! Excellent. We've have we banished all memories of I won't say its name, the one we spoke of first. <laughs> Don't remember what we're talking about. What am Who? I talking what? about? Yes. Shall we move on then to Sound of Metal? Yes. Drummer Ruben. Riz Ahmed is part of Black Gammon, a punk metal duo alongside his girlfriend Lou, played by Olivia Cook, playing hazardously loud shows every night. Or, as it turns out, catastrophically loud, as Ruben suddenly finds his hearing disappearing, something we experience through the film's excellent sound design and mixing, with shots from Ruben's point of view conveying to us the severity of his reduced perception. And it's worth pointing out, this is far beyond the sort of let's make the sound a bit muffled for a moment thing you might have experienced in other films. Ruben consults a doctor who tells him he has lost between 80 and 90% of his hearing ability and that it will likely get worse, especially if he doesn't avoid loud sounds. In denial, or possibly simply at a loss as to what to do, Ruben nevertheless plays at that night's gig but leaves mid-set before telling a confused and worried Lou what's going on. Lou, who at first seems more concerned than Ruben himself, foresees another problem. 
Ruben is a heroin addict who has been clean for four years and she fears this problem could cause him to relapse. She therefore contacts his sponsor, who does some investigation and finds a deaf commune in Virginia, where a group of deaf addicts meet and who are willing to help Ruben. Here he is met by Joe, Paul Rassi, a Vietnam War veteran and recovering alcoholic who lost his hearing in the war. He aims to help Ruben come to terms with his deafness and to learn that deaf people don't need fixing. Ruben's reactions to his condition, his denial and his assertions about getting things sorted mirror the behaviours of an addict. A similarity Joe points out to him. Separated from Lou, Ruben must enter the commune alone and surrender his car keys and phone. He finds some inner calm and acceptance after a while, as well as learning sign language, and becomes a popular figure in the community and the attached primary school. He never lets go of his plan to have surgery of a cochlear implants though, and a video on the internet of Lou performing alone prompts him to sell all of his possessions, including the RV that was his and Lou's home, to raise funds for the surgery. Returning to the commune post-procedure, he doesn't get the reception he expected, and an angry and upset Joe tells Ruben he must leave the community immediately. This is a place for accepting, not repairing. Ruben is then left to make the rest of his journey on his own. The key to this film is the sound design, and it's really going to benefit from a decent sound system, or at least good headphones, and a lack of distractions, to allow you to appreciate the sound and lack of sound as well as the silence, which isn't quite the same thing. Ruben's diminishing hearing, the weird robotic nature of the fake sound created by the implants, the oddness to hearing viewers of an entirely silent conversation, and uh, the sign language conversations are subtitled for hearing viewers and the spoken conversations for deaf viewers, which is nice. The other key, things can have multiple keys, right? is Riz Ahmed, who is simply outstanding. He studied drumming for six months before shooting, and also studied deafness and learned American Sign Language, things which clearly helped make his performance much more real and empathetic. Necessarily, Ruben doesn't get a huge amount of dialogue, or, to be fair, a huge amount of characterization. I'd love to know more about him and his past and passions, but Ahmed is acting with everything he's got. Movement, expression, position... And it just overcomes that lack. It's captivating. A few days removed from Sound of Metal now, and my initial appreciation has tarnished a little. While I still think it's an excellent film, the things that bothered me during the film bother me more. Primarily the proscriptive nature of its tone. Deafness isn't a handicap, preaches Joe. But of course it is. It absolutely is. Especially when it descends so suddenly. There are fewer ways to experience and sense the world. Life is necessarily rich, uh, less, necessarily less rich, the world necessarily more dangerous. Not allowing yourself to be limited by the inability to hear to the greatest extent possible, and certainly not allowing yourself to be defined by its absence is a great philosophy, and that's certainly in there. But Joe's perception of Ruben's choice as a betrayal is offensive. It suggests an intolerance on director-writer Darius Marder's part. Deaf people don't need fixing, so getting the am- so getting the implants is antithetical to what it is to be deaf, and therefore wrong. Rather than it being a choice made by this individual, with this individual's history, this individual's needs, and this individual's desires in mind. Despite these reservations, I heartily recommend seeing it. For the interesting sound design, and especially for Ahmed's restrained, nuanced performance which rises above his underwritten character, and in general for being a believable character drama that at every step shows the melodrama that so often afflicts similar tales. Yeah, I'm only a few hours removed from having finished watching Sound of Metal, so I've not thought about it in the same depth as you have. I didn't necessarily get that um, prescriptive nature of it. I mean, obviously that one character has some very specific views, but I didn't really take that as being anything more than that character's take on it. I did feel that um, at first, but that does uh, a couple of days on it. I've, yeah, I feel a bit differently. So, I'm not sure about that, but certainly the rest of it, I can wholeheartedly recommend it. It's a heck of a performance from mm-hmm. Zamid. Not to take anything away from that, but yeah, the, the real star of it was the uh, sound design. Um, it's 
it, it perhaps hits home a little more for me than anyone else. I've lost maybe half my hearing in one ear. I've got tinnitus. I, I can't get rid of this buzzing. So, you know, I, I quite appreciate this kind of stuffy sound design. It, it's nice to see this uh, representation kind of thing. Um, and it's just a heck of a film. And obviously, it's not narratively particularly heavy. If that's what you're going into expecting, you're not going to get a great deal from it in that regard. But in terms of a kind of character study and... Uh, a look at what something like this kind of event can do to one person in particular. It's uh, tour de force. Uh, really quite effective filmmaking and, uh, yeah, a heck of an experience to, to go through. Yeah, but yes, the sound design is just absolutely incredible. Um, if nothing else, it is worth watching for that. If you're the kind of person who is listening to a podcast about films, then you definitely need to watch this film. If nothing else, just as an example of how great sound design can be and how effective it can be in, in propelling the uh, the character development of uh, one person so yes from that regard if nothing else it would be worth recommending but thankfully there are other things to recommend <laughs> in it as well so it's just a number of tremendous performances and uh, yeah it's just a, a very compelling little film yeah um it's just i don't think i've seen a film like it or even close to being like it in terms of the sound design it's really interesting Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And talking of sound, but in a different way, also, Riz Ahmed, at least as far as I can tell from you know not being an American, but his accent seems flawless to me. Yeah, you can't yeah. tell he's uh, from London. Yes, and, and particularly given that I don't, th- maybe I have, but I can't remember seeing him anything since um, Four Lines, which is a you see Nightcrawler. Different- he is a Nightcrawler, but he's still to my shame I've not seen Nightcrawler. Oh, you need to fix uh, that. Yes. But yes, it's it's very convincing. He's a very convincing actor, and uh, yeah, very obviously very committed. I mean, six six months of training on the drums—that's more than Ringo Starr did his entire career. <laughs> oh dear, he was in Rogue One. Ringo Starr? Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was one of the stormtroopers. It's really hard to tell under that um, costume. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, again, I, I think even without the interesting things, it, it'd be. Oh, more than worth watching certainly for him alone but then you add yeah. that very very interesting sound design which is what kind of makes it unique and not simply very good yes um, yes it's kind of what sets apart it's uh for anybody not familiar with it it's on amazon prime it's an amazon studios film so fairly easy to get to for a lot of people to get access to okay well let's move on to another music related film although in, in quite a different regard that's soul scott Tell us about Soul. Yes, Soul is the latest from Disney Pixar or Pisney or Dixar. Yeah, maybe not the last one. Um, <laughs> in, which, in which a New York music teacher, Jamie Foxx's Joe Gardner, dreams of achieving his lifelong ambition of being recognised as a jazz star. So shouldn't this film be called Jazz then? Oh, don't worry, we'll get to that. It seems after years of false starts and beseechings from his family to settle down and learn to love teaching, he might be getting his big break, securing a gig with the famed Dorothea Williams Quartet. Then he falls down a manhole and dies. Whoops. Or is left comatose, at least. His soul, ah, it all becomes clear, is transported to a carefully non-denominational afterlife holding pattern, but... Not being ready to enter the great beyond, Joe jumps off the Travelator of Souls and ends up in the great before, where unborn souls are prepared to plummet to Earth to perpetrate the horrors of humanity upon each other. Due to some confusion or other, Joe ends up assigned as an instructor to Tina Fey's 22, a soul that needs to find her spark in order to fill out her passport to Earth. Thing is, she doesn't seem to want to leave the comfort of the great before, so they work out a deal. Find the spark, complete the passport, trade positions. It doesn't go quite to plan, though, with 22 continuing to be unable to find that spark. However, they're helped by, of all people, Graham Norton's dream warrior hippie sign dude Moonwind and his pan-dimensional soul galleon <laughs> heading to Earth, but Joe comes back <laughs> wrong. Which is to say that he possesses the body of a passing therapy cat, while 22 is slapped into Joe's body. As such, I'm afraid to say that Tina Fey is now cancelled due to performing in digital blackface. <laughs> Hashtag blackface. Eh. The rest of the film chronicles How the attempt. How long did you spend on that one, Scott? <laughs> Literally two seconds, and that's the respect that it deserves. Uh, the rest of the film chronicles the attempt to get the souls back into the respective correct homes while keeping Joe's career on track and avoiding the wrath of Terry, Heaven's accountant, voiced by Rachel House. And hey, they might just realise a few things about the human condition along the way. 
Contrary to expectations raised by my tone in the proceeding, I quite enjoyed Soul. Look at me, subverting things like Ryan Johnson. Um, it has a... <laughs> It has a charming visual style, or styles to be more precise, both the lovingly caricatured New York and the stranger soulscapes of the great before. It's asking more meaningful questions than media primarily for children would, to be fair, a standard Pixar strength, but this certainly executes it much better than Onward, if not so well as Coco, but then what could? If there's a disappointment to be found, and frankly this is a stretch, it's that the vocal performances, or maybe the script are just good. Either the cast isn't leading into the material or the material isn't adapted to the casting, which perhaps leads into a rehash of the cast professional voice actors over Hollywood stars argument again, but this does not feel like Jamie Foxx or Tina Fey playing a character. It feels like them showing up and reading their lines. That's even more prevalent, but less important with the supporting cast. Hello, Richard Ayoade. Glad yeah. to see you're doing Richard Ayoade again. It's not what I was going to um, say. It's like it's got Richard Ayoade is playing Richard Ayoade. And yes. that it should be entitled Richard Ayoade, not Jerry. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, based on the high opinion I generally hold of Fox and Faye, I thought they were maybe a touch below par here. Still, not enough to take me out of a film while watching it, and only while writing about it later on, so I recommend that you just don't do that and watch it instead. Also, it seems weird that Trent Reznor did the music for this. It's like finding out that Louis Armstrong invented K-pop. Um, but other- <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, yes. To be fair, more of the um, New Age stuff that was in here rather than the uh, soul yes. stuff, which I think is more John Batiste or some of the John other Batiste, guys, from, yeah. or Questlove, I think, maybe as well from some of the casting. But yeah, um, yeah. It's nonsense aside, Soul was really enjoyable. I really enjoyed it. Um, yes. Uh, I don't. You don't want to say a return to form for Pixar because normally their quality is quite high. I think out onward was a little bit of a blip, and even then I didn't think it was all that bad. And this is certainly up there with some of their best work. I liked it a lot. Um, I think you'll remember that I did think onward was all that bad. So um, mm-hmm. this is a, a good degree above that, which is good. That said, I still thought Soul was fine. It's kind of middling Pixar, I guess, for me, uh, and I think. Part of that is actually the Trent Reznor music is is awful. It's unlistable. It's just, <laughs> I, hate it. I hate it so much. All this the kind of electronic rubbish that was in the kind of great before and great beyond. I hated it. Um, whereas John Batiste's uh, jazz compositions were great. I really enjoyed yeah, those. Yeah. I really like John Batiste. Um, if you're not familiar with John Batiste, he's the band leader on Stephen, um, the late show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, him and his band Remain Human. Uh, so his stuff was really good. And I've been quite looking forward to seeing that, actually, because of watching him talk about it with Stephen Colbert a couple of times in the last few months. Yeah, um, yeah so part of the problems in music, um, it's... Yeah, you do. You make a good point, Scott, about the performances. It didn't. They didn't feel like performances for a lot of the part. Yep. It's like yeah, it's like they turned up to be themselves. And I don't know when this was when their vocal performances were put in. I mean, would this have been during the pandemic or after it? Were they together? Could they bounce off each other? I don't know. But it felt a little bit. Yeah, not I mean, flat's too harsh, but it felt like they were just showing up and reading what they were given to them. There wasn't really much of the way of personality implanted upon those roles. It didn't feel like they made them their own. They just felt like they were they read what they were given and did that well enough. Which is fine, yeah. but it doesn't make it special. Yeah, that's I mean they're not phoned in, although that's kind of technically exactly what they were. Um, yeah. But uh no, but it it didn't uh, I mean I know most voice acting and animations is actually done alone anyway. Uh occasionally be able to get people together but Yeah. Uh but even that's like maybe just not having the director like right with them to be able to kind of just tweak things a bit yeah um the, yeah that's it's not so much that the voices are lacking lacking in energy but it's just i don't know there's not there's kind of nothing special about it um, I, yeah it just don't repeat it again but it felt like they were just playing themselves yeah, it, yeah, so it, I mean, it's obviously more important more obvious in the way that richard uh, um, Ayawadi or Norton performs their lines because you know th- this isn't their bag. This isn't really what they're. I can kind of get behind it for that. But yeah, when Jamie Fox shows up, he just sounds like Jamie Fox. It doesn't sound like him. I couldn't really buy it as a, a character of uh, Joe. It just felt like Jamie Fox reading the lines that this guy was. Um, yeah. 
mapped onto. Same with Tina Fey to a lesser degree, I think, maybe. But yeah, yeah it just didn't quite gel. Again, like when it's competent. It, it does the job. It's just to get us nothing Absolutely, special yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Richard Ayoade is Richard Ayoade. Uh, yeah, in, in a way that, that there's obviously been more iconic voices. I mean, obviously, you go back to Toy Story for this kind of thing, where you know, it absolutely does not feel like you're watching uh, Tom Hanks on yeah, screen when you see Woody. Woody. Yeah. You know, uh, same with um, uh, the rest of the cast there. But yeah, it just yeah. didn't quite gel you. Graham Norton, uh, he's not really an actor. I know he's in a handful of episodes of Valentine. It's not really an actor, so I'll let yeah. that pass. Um, he's in there just because he's kind of popular. Like you could, some people in the United States watch Eurovision with his commentary and like, his, mm. pop, his talk show has become reasonably popular. Yes, uh, I quite like Graham Norton, to be honest. I didn't yeah, mind it's, it, it's but yeah, it's, just, it, it, it's very clearly Graham Norton showing yeah, doing a voice yeah, role. It's not, there's no character to it, yeah. My point is, I'm going to cut him a lot of slack. Um, yeah. But weirdly, like the one character that, at least because I don't know anything about her, but the one character that had any actual, it was like a character was Terry, and I hated it. (laughs) I hated that character so much. I hated her voice. I hated the character. So I was like, maybe they they were okay just being themselves. Because the one thing that did have a distinct character, I did not care for at all. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but my bigger problem was, as well as I really did enjoy the the music and the Great Before, Great Beyond thing. But the first, I was really not enjoying the film to begin with, and particularly... That that section in the great before, and then, as you said, his um, great pan-dimensional soul galleon. <laughs> all of that stuff that's happening there, and I was watching, I thinking, who the hell's the audience for this? <laughs> Kids must be bored out of their skulls watching this, and I'm bored out of my skull watching this, and I'm an adult. And I, I was generally thinking, it, it's it kind of took some of the concepts of Inside Out, and like doubled down on them, and like, yeah. uh, and. I, it's so not entertaining and I wonder where they're going with this and then suddenly Jamie Foxx is a cat and like oh right okay I'm on board with this now because yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I was really worked I, I didn't actually know anything about the plot beyond like the very broadest strokes I, I'd kept it that way specifically yeah. and I was watching this and I was like I was really worried the whole film was going to take place in the kind of Realm the metaphysical the realm, yes. Yeah, um, and I, it's, it's not interesting, and it's like this is not this is really dry for an adult with this kind of metaphysical stuff. Like, how, how are kids going to watch this? And then I said again, suddenly Jamie Foxx is a talking cat. Like, okay, <laughs> and yeah. um, it, it was a very sudden thing. But like when the souls appear, like, oh, okay, right, this is actually fun now. Okay, <laughs> um, and you get, it's not a top tier. Pixar at all, but it, it's entertaining. It's funny. Listen, it's, I'd, I'd much rather we have Pixar that's taking risks on stuff like this, and even though it didn't quite pan out. Stuff like Onward, but it's challenging a bit more than making Cars Four. Yes, um, absolutely. That's, like, that's what they seem to be doing recently because they had a lot of criticism for it. They, like, they went for the safe stuff, the the constant sequels, right? Four Toy Stories now. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and admittedly, only the fourth one was the one that wasn't like uh, the highest quality, but still, it's like yeah, really. And especially when you, you tied up that story so nicely in three. Yeah. So the, they are trying stuff now, and I appreciate that. And, and that's good because they kind of need to fail. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, that's creatively, how else do you get better? It's like, no, you need a big flop. And th- this wasn't it by any means. Uh, but I like that they're trying new things. And that's good. Yeah. And uh, certainly the bullet points of this is no less strange than something like Coco. And Coco is one of the best films I've seen in the last you know decade. So yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. if they keep pushing these, or some, I'm happy enough for them to keep going. This one is just for me, you know, pretty good rather than excellent. But yeah, uh, you know, for, yeah. for me, it's fine. But again, I appreciate they're trying something, and I do appreciate that the the main character and his friends and family are black because absolutely, that has certainly been lacking. Yeah. Although, I mean, beyond like, it refers to jazz, and there were some black people involved in the making it. John Baptiste, who I mentioned, and I think it's one of the scriptwriters black as well. I'm sure, they're like they've. They didn't make the mistakes they made in the past and actually had people of colour involved in the production of it. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's still, it's like, the fact that the black is sort of incidental. It's not really kind of much about the like the experience of being yeah, yeah. black about it, but I mean, this is Disney who won't even let like women kiss each other if they're a main character, so... But, <laughs> Um, not even like the most chase kiss. So, like, I'll take this just now. It's it's a step. Um, yeah. 
So it's good that they are trying something different. And it's a big step up from Onward, which I really didn't care for at all. It's the first non-car-based Pixar film that I really, really disliked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, yeah, it's good that it exists. I just, I think, I do wonder, as you discussed, whether like the pandemic has caused kind of limitations in how they made it and that has got come across on screen like the there's it's just lacking a certain je ne sais quoi that there's mm. something yeah. not, it's like it just needs a bit more punch a yeah. lot of the promises um, and whether being made in a different year whether the end result would have been better very good yeah. chance of it but obviously you can never know yeah I don't know, I think with with a hand they've been dealt, I think they've done as well as they could uh, mm-hmm. with the concept and with everything else. It's, it, yeah, I think I think you, probably the one thing you, you said I maybe didn't consider is how would this land with a very young audience? Because it's hard to say how much they'd know about the concepts and ideas being put together about souls being uh, made to born and being ready to transition to the great beyond and all that sort of stuff. It's maybe a bit too esoteric on that level but I might in a vacuum have said the same thing about Inside Out which seemed to have uh, done pretty well by all uh, all considerations so maybe I'm just not giving them the credit they deserve but yes um, I don't know Inside yeah. Out had like, it was like you know, the idea of emotions which are children's, children yeah. can't understand and, they, they, like, they, the, yeah, they don't understand don't, anger and stuff yeah, yeah <laughs> children don't know what hedge fund managers are <laughs> that's quite an important yes. point early on true, true if it's any metric, my two love Inside Out, but they've shown no interest whatsoever in watching Soul. So, yes, you must experiment upon them by showing them Soul, <laughs> well, reporting back. Uh, my uh, my wife is the only one in the house who's watched Soul, and her summation was, oh, "It was all right." Yeah, that's um, pretty much James with me. <laughs> yeah, but, ever felt. but she didn't think it would be particularly uh, interesting to the kids. So. Yeah. I know that, 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 the chances of them getting through the first 15 or 20 minutes are pretty slim I think if well, they get I d- through that then it's actually it's okay but that the yeah. first chunk of that film's a slog I was yeah. I was in the room while she was while she was watching it but I was like sort of otherwise engaged but I did like catch much of that sort of opening half hour I did at least see some of it and I can totally get where she's coming from so yeah I, d- I didn't see anything there that I thought this will this will keep my kids attention it did seem yeah. some, it's somewhat on the abstract it seems like it should be rated 12A just on the basis of practicality <laughs> interest rather than anything yeah. thematically involved in it yeah, yeah. But yeah. less yeah. the parents you know, of young children just waste a lot of money basically yes. Yes. <laughs> out of curiosity Craig how did your kids respond to the section in um, Inside Out where they become abstract shapes uh, I don't recall rightly. I don't recall because, at all. Um, because if the opening of this film, like after, but the first few minutes when setting up um, Joe, but after that, the the stuff we were talking about, the realm of the mass, uh, the great beyond, and the great before, it feels like an extension of that section of Inside right. Out. I don't. I'm trying to think the last time they watched it, I couldn't tell you exactly what uh, they actually. Tell you a lie, actually, they watched it like last week. Now that I think about it, but I wasn't, I wasn't there in the room for that one. So <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. I dare say, like my, my my eldest is at a stage where she might wrestle with some of what it's trying to offer, or she might potentially sort of instinctively understand some of it, if not explicitly. But like you know my, my youngest there's no hope in hell that no he would, no. He would last more than about five minutes from from what i saw so you know nobody farts in the first five minutes uh <laughs> nobody steps in poo or anything like that so yeah it's a common not- flaw with most films to be fair most films yes. could be improved yeah, by that if there's if there's any um criticism to level to citizen kane scott absolutely, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. whereas on the other hand the carry on films my kids are big connoisseurs of <laughs> Oh, dear. oh, matron. Shall we, shall we move on then to another round, which I think we'd all use by this point? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Thomas Vinterberg's Another Round. The original Danish name is Druk, which translates to English as binge drinking, which is certainly more direct than the rather euphemistic English title, tells the tale of a small group of high school teachers. During a birthday dinner for one of their number, the group discussed the idea proposed by the Norwegian psychiatrist Finn Skuderud that human beings naturally have too little alcohol in their bloodstream and that maintaining a blood alcohol content of 
0.05% leads to increased happiness and creativity. The next morning, one of the members, Mads Mickelson's Martin, decides to experiment with the concert, bringing some vodka along with him to school. Martin, who had been depressed and flailing, if not outright failing, in both his marriage and his job, finds himself liberated and re-energised. After this, Martin and his friends, Nikolai, Tommy and Peter, make a pact to all attempt the experiment, with the goal of writing a paper on the results. Oh, and they'll never drink after 8pm, a limit inspired by Ernest Hemingway, someone for whom things worked out really well. (laughs) Experience with being human will tell you that this is not likely to end well with the alcohol experiment causing some problems, masking other problems, and revealing others still. And maybe, just maybe mind, teachers drinking while at school isn't a brilliant idea? Another round definitely has some comments to make, beginning as it does with teenagers getting drunk in a park. In Denmark, you can buy beer or wine from the age of 16, so it's not a legality problem. And the observation by Martin's wife, Annika, Maria Bonavi, that this whole nation drinks like maniacs anyway. But what might surprise you to learn is that this is really a funny and at times uplifting and feel-good movie. It's tragicomic and certainly bittersweet, but it's warm and made me laugh a lot. It's driven by an excellent centre performance by Mads Mikkelsen, who I'm not sure I've ever actually seen act in Danish before. Yeah. With a small, solid supporting cast, including the aforementioned Bonavi, Incidentally, Maria Bonvi played the hotel receptionist Insomnia. Making this one of those weird coincidences where you see someone in nothing ever, then in two unrelated films almost back to back, and Tim Key's Danish cousin. <laughs> yes, literally, yes. Yes. Uh, while I mentioned another round has something to say, it's not much, as it's quite a flippant film with a premise based on what could charitably called questionable science. But it's just a lot of fun, and that'll do me nicely. And Craig, as we've established at the beginning that I don't watch films for fun, 80% of the films of this podcast I enjoyed. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) No. Don't smoke after eight. (laughs) Yes, I liked another round. Um... I don't think there's an awful lot to say about it, other than it's uh, really nice to see Matt Mickelson, who obviously doesn't not need to prove his acting chops and anything uh, to anyone by this point, but it's nice to see it done in his native language, which, like you, I don't think I've seen him and anything else. I'm willing to be proved wrong on that, but I don't remember seeing him in anything that's not um, English language. And Yeah, I had a quick scan yeah. through his, um, his filmography, and I, nothing stuck out to me that I could remember having seen him in his, doing anything other than mm-hmm. English, in a language in which he acts very well also, but yes. <laughs> nice to see him acting Danish. Yes, and of course there's a great affinity between the Scots and the Danes because, well, alcoholism. And, uh, yes, it's... <laughs> and, uh, and being miserable. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, most of this worked pretty well. Um, it, it is... I don't, know, I don't know if I go so far as to say it's uplifting, um, given the, you know, suicides and all that. But, you know, it's um, funny on a number of occasions and it's definitely uh, interesting to see the, the, the kind of results of their experiments into alcoholism and uh, increasing alcohol content and all that stuff. And uh, it's frequently very funny. So, yes, it it definitely has that going for it. Uh, It is well acted by everyone. And, uh, yeah, frequently, definitely funny enough to make it worth a recommendation on that basis alone. So, yes, um, probably worth giving it to go. I laughed laughed heartily at the scene when they're stealing the... The bottles in the bar. The first time I thought he was just helping himself to drink, and then suddenly he's got yeah. two whole bottles he's just lifted off this um, <laughs> the shelf of the bar. Uh, just interesting you read that as a suicide, because I didn't, I know other people have. I read that as a tragic accident, just because he was so drunk and he didn't have his life jacket on. Uh, I mean, maybe, but <laughs> who can say? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was very drunk at the time, so... <laughs> I mean, it doesn't change the film much. It's just a, mm. like that's not how I read it. I, I, had he done that, um, I wouldn't be surprised. But I, I didn't read that actually how that happened was because of that. Um, mm. Again, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't affect the film. It's, uh, I just found it just, just a, a very entertaining film. And just to prove Craig Long that I like films and watch them because I enjoy them. 
<laughs> it's just there's less to say about them that's the thing because I yes. went on this massive screen about Wonder Woman which I hated I really liked another round and I had a couple couple paragraphs about it and that's it that's yeah. the problem <laughs> so um, that will wrap us up for tonight then I think if you would like to get in touch with us for this or any other reason and you can definitely do so through the mediums of Twitter we're on there at Fuds on Film, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, or we're on your old emails at podcast at Fuds on Film.com. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other, and I'm sure my compadres will bid you in joining, uh, joining you as you. That'll do. Bye. Go away. I'll feed us in.